0: Well, I think it's time to get started. My name is Terry Dalrymple, and this session will be on community health evangelism, or CHASE. So if you're in the wrong place, this is your time to exit. I'm assuming you're not in the wrong place. We're going to get started this morning. Can we pray? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather today, and to learn, and to think together, and to explore ways that we can spread your fame throughout the earth. We pray that as we um, look together today at a strategy, that you would guide our hearts and our thoughts, and uh, that each one who is here would pick up something that they can use as, as they move on in the thing that you've called them to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Tell me where you learned about community health evangelism or what you know about it. Or is it all new to you? I about it from you. You learned about it from me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Florence picked up the book, a Multiplying Light and Truth, written by Stan Rowland, who was the guy who did the first CHA program in Uganda years ago. Um, and she started implementing uh, from reading the book. And uh, she thought Stan was dead. One day she met a ghost. <laughs> Stan is still here. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, all right. In, in or India. Okay. Yeah. Che, yes? I interned with in, in Kenya. All right. <coughs> yeah. Did you get into the Mathari slums? See Mission of Hope? Yes. Yeah. That's a big work. Che is being used by about 650 organizations in 126 countries around the world. And... Um, it's really become a movement. I remember being with our board one day at Medical Ambassadors, and our desire was to let it go, to give it to the kingdom. So none of the material that we um, produce is copyrighted. We say it belongs to the kingdom. We give, it to, we give it to workers in the field in Microsoft Word so that they can uh, make it fit their context and edit and modify and uh, make it useful for, for them and for their teams. Um, But I remember saying to uh, the board at Medical Ambassadors that wanted me to count everything, I said, there's going to come a day when we can't count uh, what God is doing, and that's going to be a good day. Uh, And that day is here. I went went into Liberia some time back. I knew of a couple small programs there, but I uh, really wasn't aware of what was going on because... With Che, you train trainers, you train trainers, you train trainers, you train trainers. trainers. And so I've been able to count out to seven generations. So there's cousins and uncles and step cousins and, you know, step brothers and everything else out there that you can imagine. So I went into Liberia thinking that I was just going to find a few small things. Found one organization that had mobilized 10,000 Che's in two provinces in the north. Uh, On that same trip, I discovered that Samaritan's Purse was using Jay in about 16 communities in Liberia. And before I left, they uh, told me that they were planning to use that as the foundation for their ministry throughout the country. And so this is not, uh, this is kind of a movement. It's kind of something that that God is doing. It's just a real privilege to be a part of it. And I'd just like to kind of share with you. Uh, some of the core principles um, of the strategy, and hopefully we'll have some time to talk about questions. But we might ask the question, why? I'm a baseball fan. Um, I I follow the Diamondbacks in Arizona. And we didn't do much this year that was worth talking about. But um, I, uh, once in a while, get to go to a game. When I go to a game there, uh, there will be somewhere between 18 and 30,000 people in the stadium on an average day watching the game. And I remember sitting in the stadium on a day when there was about, you know, 20,000 people in the stadium and looking around and thinking about this statistic. 17,000 children die each day before the age of five, most from preventable causes. Um... A lot of the deaths happen in, in infancy, at childbirth. Uh, Diarrhea and malaria are still a major cause of death for children under five. 780 million people do not have access to safe, clean drinking water. Can you imagine that? We just take that for granted, don't we? But it's true. And 2.5 billion people, this is one-third of the world's population, do not have access to improved sanitation facilities. Um, So I guess the question is, do we as the church have an obligation or is there something that we need to be doing about this? Is this something that we can just look the other way and Oh, well, it doesn't matter that people don't have clean water. Their children are dying prematurely. um, That's not the concern of the church. After all, if you feed somebody today, they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. If you save their soul today, they're saved forever. If you give them clean water, but you don't give them the forgiveness of sins, what have you accomplished? You heard that kind of thinking? I had to come to a place where I repented of that. Because I was taught to prioritize the commands of Christ rather than find a way to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a question of what's more important. It's a question of who we follow and what he said. So I remember being in the Philippines working with men that I had baptized who were going to become the elders of the church that I was planting and I asked them, what is the mission of the church? And they said, well, the mission of the church has to be to love God and love your neighbor. And I said, no. The mission of the church is saving souls and save <laughs> souls. Love God and love your neighbor. Because I had been schooled um, in a theology that was reacting to the social gospel in the last century. And uh, so we had separated social action and evangelism. If you're familiar with some of the big dialogues that have been going on for the last 50 years among evangelicals worldwide uh, at Luzon and other things, the question has been what's the relationship between social action and evangelism? Well, here's the relationship between social action and evangelism. The same Lord who commanded us, evangelize commanded us to love our neighbor and those things belong together. We're to, to, we to take the gospel in word and deed. We preach a gospel of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Our gospel saved souls for heaven. His was interested in social, mental, physical, spiritual well-being. He came, he came not just to save souls, but to restore, redeem all things. To put all things back under the lordship of Christ. To reverse the curse. To undo the things. <laughs> that have been done by sin. And if we, as the church, are the reflection of the kingdom of God in this life, um, we are imperfect for sure. But we can't deny the fact that our ministries must reflect the values of our Savior and His kingdom. And justice and compassion and meeting the needs of the poor, I believe, is an obligation that the church has. So, after this dialogue with my Filipino brothers who just looked at the scriptures from a completely different worldview perspective than I did, I went back and I asked the question, okay, what is the obligation of the church to the needs of the poor? I started looking at the prophets and I looked at the ministry of Jesus um, because all of my thinking about the mission of the church really came from the epistles. and and Mine was a Pauline gospel, right? But then when I began to look at Jesus and I began to look at the prophets, I saw something completely different. And how can you overlook it? Jesus separated the sheep, sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, based on how they responded to the needs of the poor. In fact, he said, if you have done it to the least of these... You have done it to me. He put himself in the place of the poor. And he said, You want to serve me? You serve them. Because I stand in their place. They stand with me. Jesus took the people that we pushed to the margins and made them the center and the focus of his ministry. Prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, the poor... They were all around Jesus. When he walked the streets, that's where he was. And so I don't think that the church can turn their eyes away. I don't think we can look the other way when 17,000 children are dying every day from diseases that are preventable. We have to do something. And the question is what? Because these are chronic problems. And in my journey toward holistic ministry, um, I set up a holistic church planting institute in Manila. And we trained 11 teams to do holistic church planting. Planted 11 churches in 18 months. Um, and what we were doing was asking the church people to give clothes and taking the clothes out and distributing them. And um, gathering medical teams and taking them into the villages to do uh, Curative things and preaching to the people that gathered. And, um, and soon it dawned on me, we're not solving any problems here. Um, we're not making things any better. The people are still poor. They still don't have uh, access to health care. Uh, uh, and they were showing um, evidence of passive dependencies, unhealthy dependencies. Sometimes they'd get angry when we gave something to one family and not to another family. Ran a pastor out of the church because he was keeping money that we were supposed to be giving to him. And I thought, okay, I don't have enough money to lift the whole Philippines out of poverty. Um, my budget will never be big enough to do that. And I'm creating these unhealthy dependencies uh, rather than than um, than seeing them take responsibility for their own problems and use resources that are available to them to solve the problems. So I began to look for another approach. What do I do? And that's where I came to CHE. Um, CHE is a strategy uh, for integrating community based development, uh, disease prevention with evangelism and discipleship. Here's a vision for you. Every church an agent of community transformation, bringing life, health, peace, and prosperity to the communities they serve. Do you believe that's, that's part of the mission of the church? That that's what God wants to achieve? I do. What did Jesus say? He said to his followers, you are the light of the world. Was he saying that just to flatter us? And then what did he say? They will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God wants us to serve in ways that reflect his glory. And he wants us to bring the values of kingdom to play in the culture and communities in which we live. And so our vision is to empower the church in villages and slums around the world to be the agent of transformation, to lift their communities out of cycles of poverty and disease, and to become followers of Jesus. And we're using the Chase strategy to do that, equipping churches and individuals worldwide as agents of transformation. So, if you want to know what is community health evangelism, this is is it. It is an Integration, a seamless integration actually, of evangelism and discipleship with community based development and uh, disease prevention. We're going to talk a little bit about community health. I'm a master of divinity, so I didn't get all this, I didn't get all the training that UMPH has got. um, But it helps me to look at things perhaps from a different angle. And we're going to talk a little bit about community health. How do you make How do you make communities healthy? Um, But I think that the church has focused on, in in, in the area of medical missions, the church has focused on the curative. I worked for medical ambassadors, and what medical ambassadors did for a lot of years was uh, mobile clinics, And they would put evangelists together with the doctors. They moved around from village to village. They did their clinics. The evangelists preached. And out of that, they hoped to plant churches. What medical ambassadors discovered is that their clinics were recycling centers. People would come to them for treatment, go back and drink the same water that made them sick. And the next time we come through, we're treating the same people for the same problems. So because we were focusing on the curative, we weren't dealing with the root causes of their illness. We weren't making the community healthy. And so um, historically, in medical missions, we have focused on the curative aspects of medicine. Uh, I think there's tremendous opportunity for the church when we focus on, um, on the, the preventive aspects. Because when we do that, it actually takes us into their homes. And we're working with them. The problem is you're uh, struggling with waterborne diseases. Let's figure out a way to sanitize your drinking water. Um, Part of the reason for your chronic poverty is because you have an alcoholic in the home that's consuming everything that you're taking in. Uh, Let's deal with the alcoholism. Uh, And so... In the home, you begin to work with the individual, not just about curing a disease, um, but about transforming their life, about helping them to think and behave in ways um, that change things for them, that improve the quality of their life over the long term. Are you following me? So what we're doing is we're training health workers to go into the home, we teach their volunteers. The average Che, a Che is a program and it's also a person. We call the person who goes into the homes and works with families the Che, a community health evangelist. Here's what they look like. Um, fourth grade education, forty something, female and four children. And they're volunteers. So we, we teach them about the importance of clean water and how to sanitize their drinking water. And they go and sanitize the drinking water in their home. And then they go to ten neighbors and they teach their neighbors about clean water and how to sanitize their drinking water. And then they come back and they learn about the living water. And they come to Christ and they go to the same ten homes and they share the gospel with them. People come to Christ and small groups are formed and those small groups then become part of a um Existing church, or come together to plan a new church, or become a disciple-making movement depends on where you are in that um, uh, in that whole world. But the thing I want you to see is that community health, I think, is a platform for uh, ministry to the whole person, for holistic ministry. We talk about it as social, mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. or We also talk about it in biblical terms as harmony with God, self, others, and the environment. But either way, you can see the holistic aspects of it. This is kind of a diagram that helps you see how it works out in a community. We train a training team. Uh, The training team usually comes from Outside the village. Sometimes they are a volunteer training team and they come from within the village. But um, just so you get a picture, uh, we equip people from the church, uh, and I use that broadly nonprofit organizations, uh, Christian nonprofits, uh, local churches, denominations. We train people to go into the village. And the first thing they do in the village is what we call awareness and mobilization. Um, The idea is that they are going to choose their priorities. They're going to identify assets. They're going to put together solutions. They're going to execute on their own plans. They're going to evaluate and they're going to repeat that cycle. And so what we need to do is to help them see they do have assets. There are things that they can use to solve problems, to help them understand the causes, why they have some of the problems that they have, and then wait for them to take action. And that's what we call community awareness and mobilization. We'll spend a lot of time in that because it goes to the question of ownership. If I go in and I tell them this is what you need and this is what you should do, then what I've done is bought a program. So what I need to do is to go in and work with them and help them see what they can do and then empower and equip them through training to do that. And so that's really what Chase all about. So when the community comes to a place where they say, hey, we, we see some possibilities here, we're ready to work together, we say to the community, why don't you choose some people, some leaders from your community that you want to lead this development process? Um, we'll call them a committee or whatever you want to call them, um, but we'll train them in project management. So we train them to identify causes, identify assets. Um, prioritize what's important, uh, put together plans, recruit people, evaluate, and repeat that cycle. This is what's amazing, is that these committees around the world, they have done, you said fish ponds, <laughs> they've done sanitation, they've done water systems, they've done roads, they've done schools, they've done churches, all with local resource. Um, and so then what, what happens is that this development committee chooses volunteers from the community. Those are the CHEs. And remember the, the profile of a CHE, uh, 40 years old, fourth grade education, female, four children. That's, you know, that's often what they look like. Um, but the training team trains the committee in project management and mentors the committee through some projects and at the same time spends 50 weeks with these Chays, discipling them, basically. Teaching them a physical and a spiritual topic each week and sending them in the homes to work on the things that the committee has. So when people come to Christ, um, because of the work of the they there form growth groups there and then the end result is a church. So can you see the seamless integration now, the reason this is different than typical development programs is because it comes out of the medical sector. It comes out of the health sector. So what we have is not just in, in international development, everybody's got a development committee, right? But in, in the health sector, you've got these health workers that are going into the homes. And we think that it's the combination of change at the, at the personal level because of the learning and the accountability that's brought by the Che into the home and the collaboration and cooperation in the community at large that creates the lift and brings the community out of cycles of poverty and disease. Any questions? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) back to the beginning. You mean about... Um, it's a combination of behavior level, uh, behavior change uh, on behalf of individuals that comes from the work of Chase, working in the homes, helping them, uh, teaching them how to sanitize their drinking water and ma- giving them some accountability for doing it and making sure that they're drinking clean water. Uh, it's, it's, it's that action combined with the collaborative work of the community together that's that is uh, managed by the committee that creates the lift. It's personal change and community change. Yes? Could you tell us some stories of when it potentially almost failed or you had troubles and how, you you know, how did you overcome that or what happened? Yeah. Um, let me just say this. Uh, many times when the program fails, it's because we've chosen the wrong site. Because we go into a place where we've already been working, we've already taught them that we're going to be the the problem solvers in the community, and they are already depending on us to solve it. Or there's a history of organizations in the community that have done that. A second reason for failure, most common reason for failure, is we don't take the time to do the community organization and awareness. We want to come in and get something done now. We want to use lessons and teach we don't want to take the time to do the hard work of developing relationships and trust and building collaboration between people and helping them work together and then helping them see the solutions to their own problems. Did, did I hear you say that this was 50 weeks, so it's a year? The trainers are working with the Chase. for Yeah, actually the trainers are in a community for three to five years. But they're not working in that community alone. They're usually working in multiple communities uh, but, but it is a long-term process, and that's another reason for failure, is that we, in America, we want quick results. But quick results are not always good results. What lasts takes time, and we need to take the time to do it right. Yeah. Some important observations about community health. Community health is focused on empowering people to manage their own health. It's not about treating people who, you know, I think in my own view of health, honestly, um, and even though um, even though I'm in community health and I want to think about myself differently, still deep down inside of me there's this idea, well, I can, I can go on eating what I want to eat and I don't have to exercise every day and take care of myself and the doctor's going to give me a pill at the end of the day. Uh, and that's exaggerated. Um, out in the developing world. Uh, and what people need to understand is that, that health is something that we, we manage personally. And we need to learn to take responsibility for our health. We need to make sure the water is clean. We need to make sure that there's good sanitation. We need to make sure there's good nutrition on the table. We need to make sure there's exercise. And we need good relationships and that kind of thing. Let me say this about my work in villages around the world, because some of you are here from other countries. Let me say this. America is rich economically and poor relationally. Our families are breaking down. The extended family hardly exists, except at Thanksgiving around the table. Um, We don't have strong communities in our neighborhoods. And we don't have strong communities in our churches. In big churches, we sit side by side with total strangers. And we go home. And there are Americans all over this country who are broken, unhealthy people. Not because they don't have money, but because they don't value, they don't have relationships. When I go into the village, I find just the opposite. They don't have money, but they have strong relationships. And something that I've learned um, about my own poverty... I would rather not have another change of clothes in a big house and have strong relationships than the other way around. And if we if we go to these villages thinking that we have something to give and nothing to receive, we're missing a blessing from the Lord. That's another question altogether. <laughs> right? But, uh, community health focuses, it emphasizes prevention rather than cure. So, for me, community health is not um, not about medical interventions, but it's, it's a broad-based community development program, which is something else we're going to talk about. Outcomes in community health are measured by behavior change. We want to measure our success by, oh, I went in and I taught them. Um, you know, I got out the lesson plans and we went through the lesson and they all understood and I did my work. But unless there's behavior change, there is nothing to show for that work. We measure our success in terms of behavior change. It requires uprooting lies and replacing them with truth. I was uh, consulting with a government agency in Korea. And I showed them uh, what I call a culture tree and describe the relationship between beliefs and values and the corresponding behaviors and the consequences of those behaviors. And I liken the beliefs to the roots, the values to the trunk of the tree, the behaviors, the branches, and the fruit, the consequences of behavior. And so I made a connection from the, the bad consequences in a community back to the values and beliefs that sustain it. And unless we do that, there will not be lasting change. Unless you change the underlying beliefs. And so that was the shock for the government. We can't do that. But if you don't do that, then you're taking the apple off the tree and you're... um, You're taping a banana to it, but you're not changing anything in a lasting way. Beliefs and values have to change if we're going to achieve the goals of community health, and I'll show you an illustration of that in a few minutes. But that's why, um, that's where the gospel integrates with our community health, because it is Christian values and beliefs that are the foundations for development and prosperity. And I could demonstrate that, but I don't have time. (laughs) Um, Important observations about community health. Uh, Community health cannot be untangled from the complexities that contribute to poor health, and therefore must be part of a broader community development issue uh, initiative. Uh, If there is malnutrition what is the long-term sustainable solution? If there's a lack of food, what's the long-term sustainable solution? Sustainable. Agriculture. Okay. So you can't separate community health from agriculture. So when we go into communities, um, we need generalists who work across the disciplines rather than specialists who work within them. We need somebody, we need a pastor who can teach agriculture, and a doctor who can teach spiritual things. We need people who are capable of, of doing that. Where's my... Um, so here's how we achieve that in change. We train uh, trainers in community organization and mobilization. And when a committee identifies an issue that they're going to work on, the trainer has lesson plans that they can use to empower, to teach to that particular issue. And um, so here is a manual. This is one of 99 manuals in our curricula. There's maybe 12,000 lessons in our curricula. We give it to the trainers when they finish the training. And it's not something they're going to begin at the beginning and work through to the end. It's a cookbook. You know, I need to work on agriculture today. So here's a manual on participatory agricultural development. I'll show how that, this was used in a community uh, later, if we have time. Um, but what this does is helps the farmers to become researchers, uh, to identify the causes for their problems, uh, to look at their markets, um, their crop rotations, um, experiment with solutions, create their own solutions and execute them. In agriculture, it's n- not always new technology that is the issue. It's the transfer of technology. When you've been doing something the same way for centuries, it's hard to change. Um, so here is, a, here is a manual on microenterprise development. So that if that becomes the issue, that's what you deal with moral values um, in Zambia we had a trainer recently who sat with an imam for 2 weeks and worked through this manual at the end the imam didn't come to Christ but he gave him permission to work in his community so he went and then met with the headman and he spent two more weeks working through these lessons with the headman the headman came to Christ and when he did the whole community declared for Christ 300 people um, we had a people movement um, as a result. So, um, do you ever think of moral values as part of community health? Um, and then we have the more typical stuff. Women, women's cycle of life uh, is another thing. Women, um, women deal with gender inequality and uh, domestic violence and um, they need to know how to have healthy babies and all kinds of things. And so, you know, that's the way we create these generalists. We make you a generalist. Uh, and so if you go to work with a community, you need to be prepared to teach on whatever it is that they need and empower them. And then we set up a network around you of consultants and people who can, can you can connect with when you have a need. Another thing about community health The aim is not projects in a few scattered villages, but movements that sweep the countryside. And these movements will be sustained by volunteer action. I'm going to talk about five keys to successful community health and development initiatives. And we're not going to have time to get through them all. We've got about 25 minutes. But the first one is worldview. Um, And I've talked a little bit about that already. Second is integration. Third is local ownership. We'll come back to these more at a time. People before projects and multiplication. Thinking about worldview. Restoring dignity and vocation. This is my experience. Whether we're talking about Muslims in Indonesia, Malaysia, Central Asia, North Africa, the Middle East many times, or, or we're talking about Hindus in South Asia, Buddhists in Southeast Asia. We're talking about Evangelicals in Sub-Saharan Africa or Catholics in Latin America. In villages and slums, what we often find is that these major religions are a veneer over animism. The real belief in those communities is that spirits animate everything that's happening in my life. So if I get sick, it's because of a spirit. If I get lucky, it's because of a spirit. If I have an abundant harvest, it's because of a spirit. Spirits animate everything in my life. Um, And in that kind of a context, people see themselves not as having control over the resources that God has given them so that they can make life better. But they see themselves as victims of the spirit world. They live at the whim of the spirit world. Uh, you go to South, you go to South Asia um, with Hinduism. If if you're a Dalit, um, the lowest class, you're a Dalit because of something you did in the previous life. You're living out the consequences of a previous life. How do you change that? How do you make life better when that's your worldview perspective? That this is my destiny. I don't have control. So we we have to restore what I call dignity and vocation. Dignity... We are made in the image of God. And vocation, we are stewards of resources and not victims of circumstance. What did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, take dominion, right? Um, God did not make us to be victims of circumstance. Or victims to the spirit world. He made us to be stewards of the resources that he has given into our hands. That Christian principle is at the core, is at the root of development. They need to know that if they're going to change. So that means we need a different perspective. Maybe we put on a different color glasses. Because what do we do? The people see themselves as victims. There's nothing I can do to change this. That's the way it is. They become passive, apathetic, um, fatalistic. Um, This is just what life is. Maybe they don't know any better. Right? But what do we do? We come and we say, oh, you've got all of these problems. Let me solve the problems for you. What are we doing in the process? We're reinforcing their victimhood. We're saying to them, yes, you are victims. And I'm here to be the Savior. Let me help you. And that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is we want them to understand that they are made in the image of God. And that means we need to learn to focus on their assets and their resources not their problems and their needs. We need to help them see what God has given them that they can use to solve their own problems. So what does that mean about bringing an outside resource? I don't want to buy a program, so I I, I don't bring money in to start with. Um, And I want to see them with a change of mind before we start bringing in things from the outside where they understand themselves as stewards of resources and they're looking to see what's available to them. And then when they have plans and they've worked 75% of the way there and they just don't have enough to get the the rest of the way or they need some knowledge that they don't have, then we can come alongside and do capacity building and help them along. So my my rule about outside resources, not too soon and not too much. To say that we don't need outside resource is blind, right? But to start there is also hurting rather than helping. Second principle is integration. Complex problems require integrated solutions. I went into China. And I was told about a study that was done there that uh, indicated that in this community, 60% of the income of the abject poor was being used to buy medicines for diseases that were preventable. So the organization going in was planning on doing microenterprise development. They stepped back and they said, wait a minute. If we give them money for microenterprise, somebody in the family gets sick, they're going to spend the money we gave them on for microenterprise on the health of their child or their family member, and they're not going to be any better off in the end. So we can't do microenterprise without doing health. We have to deal with those things simultaneously. And all problems are complex. There's relationships between addictions and poverty, and uh, and the more you get into this, the more you see that um, worldviews and clean water. You, you, know, you can't separate those things. You have to deal with the complexities that are there. Which means we need multi approaches. I studied for a PhD at um, Oxford Center for Mission Study and they just didn't know what to do with me. Because I kept telling them, no, I can't put this into a sector. It belongs... You know, I, I want to be a generalist and they want to make me a specialist. And... Uh, so we had arguments. <laughs> but integration begins with me. Here's something important. Following Jesus does not mean that I learn to share the four laws and to ignore the poverty that's around me. If I, if I am following Jesus, I need to be obedient to everything he commanded, including the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Integration begins in me. I can't go there thinking of myself as I'm a doctor and I'm not going to teach anybody about Christ. Or I'm an agriculturalist and I'm not going to say anything about health. I've I've got to see that my um, ministry is to meet needs in in the name of Jesus. And be willing to move outside my specialty in order to do that. Uh, let me tell you about holistic worldview analysis. You know Ravi Jayakaran? Anybody here? This this comes from him. But his studies say that villages around the world have survival strategies. And at the core, there are certain things that the community produces that they need for their own survival. Products and services that they can they can provide for themselves. Then in another circle, moving out, there are things that they can't produce or provide for themselves. They're dependent on neighboring communities to provide. And so through trade and other things, they bring those things in. But then there's a a third area of life, which Ravi calls their vulnerabilities. And that's those are the areas that they can't produce for themselves. They can't get through trade. So it's outside of their control. Those things that are outside of their control, you know what they do with them in villages? They turn them over to the spirits. And the spirits um, hold whole communities captive through their vulnerabilities. They prove themselves to them, shrines are set up, then there's certain rituals that you have to do in order to appease the spirits. And if you don't do those things and we have a bad harvest, it's your fault because you angered the spirits. And the spirits take control through vulnerabilities. What have we done? We've taken the gospel to these villages, taught it to them as forgiveness of sins, something having to do with the future, and we've ignored their vulnerabilities. And so what have we done? we've left their vulnerabilities in the control of the spirits and that's true all throughout sub-saharan africa and in many other places around the world so what do we need to do we need an integrated approach to ministry what are some of their vulnerabilities health harvest weather things like disaster disasters uh, those are their vulnerabilities When we begin to work in those areas, we actually enter into spiritual warfare. And until we work in those areas, we're not going to truly make uh, disciples of Christ whose minds have been transformed by the truths of the gospel. So it's not enough just to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They need us to enter into their vulnerabilities and help them understand that that God has created them in his image as stewards of resources. And there are solutions that they can use their minds to discover because of what God has put in them. i take you to papua new guinea um, and this is a good illustration of integration when i went to the uh, went to papua new guinea i went to the national department of health met with a man who was responsible for the healthy islands initiative a 10 year initiative community health initiative supported by Oz aid and the world health organization and uh uh when i sat down with him he said to me there's only one institution in this country with the capacity to do what we need to do in the area of community health, and that's the church. I need someone to mobilize the church. So I said to him, I can mobilize the church, but I can't silence it. And if we, uh, if we take uh, the church into the community to work on the priorities of community health, they're going to take the gospel with them. He leaned forward and he said to me, the World Health Organization and AusAid in this part of the world define health as social, mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. The problem is they don't understand spiritual. As far as I'm concerned in this country, spiritual is Christian. And he gave us permission to work with the regional and district health offices across the country um, to, to train people within the department to work with the churches to mobilize the churches to do check. So I came back a year later, and we had work in 51 different communities at this time, uh, and it continued to grow from there. Um, But in the Lufa district in the Eastern Highlands, before we started, the district health officer there said to me, we've been trying for 30 years to get people here to use latrines, and we have 3% compliance Because people here believe that evil spirits inhabit human waste and they hide in dark corners. So if you build a latrine, you're building a spirit house that nobody will go into. I came back a year later. That district, I don't know if it's true, but this is what he said. The district health officer was jumping up and down, smiles all over his face. He said, we have 100% compliance. In here. And then I went and saw the, saw the latrines. I saw them like this. I saw them lined up ten side by side um, outside the village. And everybody had their own little padlock. And it looked like they were being used. And so I think what he was saying was true. When I saw those latrines, I said to myself that this is not just a physical intervention. This is a spiritual revival. They have overcome the fear of evil spirits by the teaching that Jesus, by his death on the cross not only forgave our sins, but he disarmed the principalities and powers and set us free from their oppression. And now they're free to do what's in their best interest. Now, nobody in Bible college or seminary ever told me that a latrine would be an indicator of spiritual growth. (laughs) What were the indicators of spiritual growth? well they go to church they give their offering they sing in the choir uh, that kind of thing right i'm getting a 10 minute warning here i'm not going to have time to get through everything another thing i saw on that same trip we went into this district uh, hanging ofi there were 60 uh, there were there were 26 different clans living in this sub- valley. They had, been at, they had been in tribal warfare for 16 years. No child had been educated in Hanganofi for 16 years because of the war that was going on between them. And when we came, this is what I saw, it's a footpath between two clans that had previously been warring. Not only did they build the footpath but they walked down to the bottom of the the mountain and brought up rocks from the river and built these retaining walls and decorated and the fence that you see there is to keep the pigs pigs in the right place, which is something else that we taught them to do. So this looked like peace. Uh, Nobody in all of my Bible college or seminary education ever taught me that a footpath would be an indicator of spiritual growth. What happened at the, end of the, at the end of the day after visiting villages throughout the district, they took me out into a big open field. And people from the different clans were there. Two tribal chiefs made a presentation to Bill Bieber and to myself. He held up the bow and arrows that he has in his hand, the guy next to me. He took one of them and he said, this is a kind of, you no, know, he said, our forefathers taught us to use these weapons. This is the kind of arrow that we use to kill pigs. He put it back, he took out another one. He said, this is the kind we use to kill each other. Then he put them together and he said, I want to give them to you because you've come here and you've taught us a different way of life. You've taught us to live at peace with one another. And now you're sitting there thinking, what does peace have to do with community health? Well, if you're worried about somebody stabbing you in the back, you're not worried about building a latrine. So when you go in to deal with the issues, they need to define what they are. And that takes us then to the question of local ownership, which is the third principle. The people need to own their own problems and create their own solutions. They need to be involved in needs assessment, planning, resource acquisition, management, implementation, multiplication, evaluation, it needs to be their process from beginning to end. Become Training, we teach you how to do that. Local ownership requires active participants rather than passive recipients. It's demonstrated through volunteerism, and this is important. If people have ownership and they're engaged, they're voluntarily using their time to improve things for themselves and for the rest of the community. Uh, When I was at Oxford, I got in trouble with people from all over the world who said, you can't ask poor people to volunteer and I said, if you don't ask them to volunteer, how do you measure, how do you measure behavior change? There's, and how do you multiply what you're trying to do? Jesus knew the importance of volunteerism. He started a volunteer movement. He didn't volunteer to pay any of his disciples. But they changed the world. And local ownership is strengthened through capacity building. When they begin to work on an issue, we can come alongside and help them understand how they can do it better. Let me, let me close with this story. This is in, uh, I don't have time for this one. Sorry. (laughs) The fourth key is people before projects. A lot of times when we do community health, we want to know how many children were immunized and how many children were fed, and that kind of thing. But if we really want long-lasting results, these are some of the things that we're looking for. We're looking for people um, in the community who see a, uh, a better future and have a hope that it can be achieved. Inspiring hope. Shared vision. That's what we're looking for as an outcome. Another outcome is leadership. There are godly Christian people positioned and equipped to lead the community toward the accomplishment of its vision. Ownership. They're taking responsibility for their own problems, not waiting passively for somebody from the outside to solve those problems. Another outcome that we're looking for is cooperation. People are united and working together. That's important because um, together they have pieces of a puzzle uh, that when they come together in collaboration, make a beautiful picture. But those pieces have to come together. So community organization is the process that makes that happen. Volunteers, there's a significant number of people taking initiative and acting sacrificially to meet the legitimate needs of others. That's the definition of love from First John. <coughs> Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God took initiative to act sacrificially to meet our needs. And that's what we want to see in the community. People doing the same thing. Dignity. People have recovered. Their identity is made in the image of God and their vocation as stewards of creation. Instead of being controlled or victimized, they are stewards. We want them to have new skills um, and access to resources. And we want to see Christian community and witness. And when those outcomes are achieved, then you begin to see change. Then you begin to see transformation. And these other things happen. Churches are established. Health improves. Agriculture becomes productive. Jobs are created. Water systems and roads. Peace, justice, compassion, and righteousness in the community. But notice, those are not what I am achieving. Those are what the community achieves. So what we're looking for in terms of outcomes For our ministry is empowered people who will change their own environment. Does that make sense? And the fifth key is multiplication, making movements rather than projects. So there they are. Five keys to successful community health initiatives. And I have about three minutes for questions. (laughs) Any questions you might have. Yes. Harry, it seems like the development of that local committee is key to success. I mean, yes. The, che, the average Che worker you described doesn't sound like a leader in their community. How does that work? Yeah, actually they're not. When, they, when the, the average Che, the, the, deve, the committee is developed first. The trainers train the committee. The committee chooses the Che's. The Che's are trained by the trainers. The Che's go into the homes. Okay. All right. Um, But what we have seen around the world is that these chays become leaders. In fact, I can show you places in the Philippines where they became elected officials. And very often the people who become trainers that take the uh, program to the next village are the Cheys. Surprisingly not the committee because those are are what you think of as the leaders in the community. But Che, another way of looking at Che as a process is it is human development. It is leadership development. And what we're seeing is that that we're empowering, we're giving capacity to the committee. And they are developing as leaders through that whole process. And the Chays are developing as leaders. And it's really that leadership that takes the community to the next level. It's leadership development, but it's not book work. It's people work. Uh, what, what typically happens, and there are ways that we, if you come to training, we'll help you work with this, right? But typically what will happen is the men will be elected to the committee and the, the, the women will be the chais, Which creates uh, an interesting thing. Because the church planters in Che programs are the Chays, the majority of them, women. Okay. Um, are there any additional resources that you can recommend for really more about this? Yes, the best thing is to go to ch c h e network.org. And if you want training, there will be a red tab there that says register for training. You hit that and you will see a list of training events happening around the world. If you don't find what you want there, then uh Right to info at J Network, but we want to get you into training. Um, and we want to help you then, after you have been trained, to establish your programs. So if you go to ChainNetwork.org, you will find um, that there are many organizations that have signed on the dotted line to collaborate together. And if you're trying to get a program started in a particular country, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can almost guarantee it. We, we can find somebody, uh, come alongside of you and help you who's already been there, already done it. That's the idea of the network. Yes? Uh, can you give me the average uh, size of the and the average number of chase? Five to 1,500 people. And average number of chase? Average number of chase depends on the population. It's a ratio. Chase can, depending on the context can serve five to ten homes. So it's a ratio. The reason the communities are small is because, well, they are small in villages, (laughs) but also because if you're going to mobilize a community, they need to know each other. They need to have a sense of belonging. They need to have a shared sense of destiny. And that's what makes Che hard in the North American context is we don't have any of that. But we're figuring out how to make it happen through neighborhood transformation. So if that's our sister organization. Yeah, any other questions? Yes? Yeah, um, all over the world, uh, people are moving out of the rural areas cities. I'm sorry? All over the world, people are moving out of the rural sector and into the mega cities. Yes, they are. Are people missing urban or semi urban situations as well? Yes. Um, it's more of a challenge because you have to create community before you can mobilize it. That's the bottom line. Yeah. But just in the last five years, um, the majority of the world's population now lives in cities. Just tipped from 50%. But that still means 50% are living in villages and slums and rural areas. Yes. Okay, any other questions? I think I'm supposed to be done, so I'll stand here and if you want to.